So we're kicking off a new sermon series this morning, and it's called Surprised by Jesus. Now, this may seem like a strange title. Jesus is the whole reason we're here after all, and we should know him pretty well. Other things in life may surprise us, but we ought to at least have Jesus figured out. Well, I'm not so sure. Sometimes I wonder if one of our greatest weaknesses as Christians is this tacit assumption that we have Jesus figured out. After the initial thrill of coming to know Jesus, we've taken the basics of the gospel and we've boxed them up into a tidy package. So we read our Bibles not with the expectation of fresh discovery, but with the desire to confirm what we think we already know. But what if there's more to Jesus? What if there are more surprises in store for us in coming back to God's word? Now, by raising this possibility, I don't intend to question biblical Christianity. On the contrary, I mean to question our grasp of the depths of this faith and the identity of this man whom we worship as the only begotten Son of God. So I want to challenge us during this season of Epiphany. I want to challenge us to be surprised by Jesus to return to the early days of his ministry and allow him to introduce himself to us as if it were the very first time. I want to invite you to be caught off guard, captivated, perplexed, and perhaps even a little bit disturbed as you meet him. And I want to invite you to a deeper and more vibrant relationship with Jesus as a result. So with all of that in mind, I want to ask you to turn to Matthew 3 with me so that we can consider this strange and unlikely beginning to Jesus' public ministry that we've just read. Matthew 3 is on page 808 of the Red Bibles. And as you turn there, I want to give you a little bit of background. So between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we have fast-forwarded through nearly three decades of Jesus' life. Having fled to Egypt soon after his birth, Jesus returned to Nazareth with his parents, where he grew up like any other boy of that era. He was trained to work in the family business as a stonemason and as a carpenter. And now he's 30 years old. He's a mature man ready to enter into the ministry and the mission for which he had come. At this time, John the Baptist was causing a stir among the people of Israel. Out in the wilderness of Judea, he lived like a hermit, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and imploring God's people to repent of their sins and be baptized so as to ready themselves for God's work of redemption. The people were responding in droves. There hadn't been a prophet like this in nearly 400 years, and they were hungry for news of God's kingdom. And excitement was growing so much that even the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to see what was going on. Now, these were the religious elite, the power brokers, the rule makers, the doctrine setters. But when John saw them, he lashed out at them. And we see this in verse 7. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, John wasn't particularly subtle in his critique of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, was he? Neither their status as leaders nor their heritage as Jews was going to save them from God's judgment. Only repentance of sin could protect them from the wrath of God. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees must have been stunned, not just by John's lack of manners, but by the idea that God was coming to judge his own people. What they expected was rescue from their enemies. What they had been anticipating was the humiliation of the Romans and a return to power in Jerusalem. And what they failed to realize and what John was making clear was that their greatest enemy was within themselves, their own hearts bent on selfish gain. Yes, God was coming to establish his kingdom, but it would be a kingdom built on a remnant who recognized their sin, humbly repented, and hungered after righteousness. The Romans, they would be judged for sure, but so would God's faithless and disobedient people. And God was going to accomplish this, this work of judgment, through a man who was far greater than John. As John says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. John is, of course, referring to Jesus, as we'll soon find out. While John baptizes with water for repentance, Jesus will baptize with spirit and with fire. But what does this mean? Well, thus far in Matthew's gospel, the, the Holy Spirit has been mentioned only once. And that is as the means by which Mary became pregnant with Jesus. In our passage this morning, the Spirit's mentioned again, descending on Jesus like a dove. Now, these very brief and allusive mentions of the Spirit, they're tied together by a common idea that appears and reappears throughout the story of Scripture. And it's this, the Holy Spirit is present and active at moments of new creation. It's the Spirit's job to give life and to renew life. So remember Genesis 1, when the Spirit hovers over the formless of, over the formless void like a bird, eager to begin the work of creation. And then Genesis 8, when Noah sent out a dove over the floodwaters and it returned with a sprig from an olive tree in its beak as a sign that life had begun again. To say that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit seems to indicate that he is about to begin a new work of creation and restoration. To say that he baptizes with fire, however, indicates that he is also about to begin a work of judgment. John uses an illustration, or Matthew uses an illustration from the harvest to drive this home. At harvest time, stalks of wheat would be gathered on a hard, dry surface where they would be threshed or beaten. The heavier kernels of wheat would separate from the inedible bits of the plant, and a shovel uh, would then be used to toss this mixture of wheat and chaff into the air. And at that point, 
the lighter chaff would be carried away by the wind so that only pure wheat would settle down to be gathered from the threshing floor. Those piles of chaff that formed along the edges of the threshing floor would then be swept up and burned as fuel. So when John says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, he's telling us that Jesus will be the means by which new life begins and he will be the means by which God condemns the disobedient. So before we even get to his baptism, what we know about the Messiah is this. He will rescue those who repent, leading them into new creation, and he will condemn those whose trust is in themselves, setting them in the fire of judgment. Jesus is our judge. That's the first thing we learn about him in this passage. He's our judge. He's come to save the humble and to set fire to the proud. And he arrives at the Jordan River to make clear that judgment begins with the people of God. Now we know that when Jesus returns at the end of history, he will come as judge. Jesus makes this painfully clear by returning to this theme in a sequence of searing parables at the end of Matthew's gospel. And when he does, his judgment, it will begin once again with the people of God. And that means us. At that point, it will not be enough to show him your membership paperwork from Holy Trinity. He will want to see the fruit of your repentance just like John demanded of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He'll be looking not for a signed statement of faith, but for the abiding awareness of our sinfulness, our trust in him for forgiveness, and our ongoing desire to honor him. The question is, will we be ready to greet him? Jesus is our judge, and that should wake us up causing us to consider the state of our hearts and to repent of our sins. But he's more than our judge. He's more than our judge because he is also our brother. And that's what we learn in verses 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. So when Jesus arrives, the last thing that John expects is for Jesus to ask to be baptized. But Jesus does, and John complies. And the question is, why? (laughs) Why? Jesus' explanation, it's enigmatic to say the least. But you know, when we consider the context in which this takes place, And in the symbolism of baptism, we can begin to understand what Jesus is doing and why. So 30 miles east of Jerusalem is the Jordan River. And there it it takes a lazy turn right before it dumps into the Dead Sea. There's a natural crossing point here where the water is shallow. It's also incredibly desolate. Although the immediate vicinity of the river is pretty lush, it's completely surrounded by desert. So within a stone's throw of the water, the landscape turns arid and harsh. 
wind-scoured rock formations, they rise out of the desert as heat waves ripple across to the surface of the Dead Sea just 400 yards away. This is quite literally, it is quite literally the lowest spot on the planet. Nearly 1,400 feet below sea level, the Dead Sea contains such high concentrations of salt and other minerals that, that life cannot survive in it. This is inhospitable country, and it's no accident that this is where Jesus turns up to be baptized. When Jesus asks to be baptized, John balks. And rightly so, because remember, this is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Going under the water in baptism, it symbolizes death. Death to one's old way of life. Rising out of the water is an emergence into a new way of obedience. And baptism, one is washed clean of their sins, but Jesus is without sin. He's got no need to repent. So why does he insist on being baptized in this desolate place? Well, it's in order to join us in the darkest depth of our human existence. Jesus came to rescue us from the pit of sin and death. And in order to do that, he climbed down to the bottom of the pit in order to grab hold of us and bring us out. He didn't send down a rope. He became one of us. He joined us in life and in death in order then to raise us to life eternal. When Jesus comes to John at the edge of the Jordan River, he turns up at the bottom of the earth where everything leads to death, and he says, I'm here and I'm with you. He quietly relinquishes his honor as the sinless son of God, and he embraces our shame. And in doing so, he affirms that he is one of us. So he is our judge but he is also our brother. Do you know what this means? This means that Jesus understands what it's like to be you. Not just theoretically, but practically. He knows all the joys and sorrows of life in this broken world. So when we turn to him in frustration or anger or confusion or in near despair, we're greeted not by some distant God we cannot touch, but by a man who's been there too and who treats us with tenderness and sympathy as a result. Jesus is our brother who has climbed into the pit right alongside us and pulled us out. The last thing we learn about Jesus in this scene is that he is God's beloved. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You know, God hadn't spoken in centuries. And even in ages past, his voice was rarely audible, but now he breaks his silence. And what's so incredibly important, 
What is it that's so incredibly important that God chooses finally to speak? Well, you know what it is. It's his love for his son. It's a message for the crowds, but it's also a message for Jesus. God's saying to him, I love you, my boy, and I am so proud of you. The Bible tells us that God is love, but here we get to see it in action. God can't keep quiet because his heart is about to burst with love for his son. Now, if you're a parent, if you're a parent, you have probably had moments like this. And in my experience, they catch us by surprise. Those moments when a look or a word or just some little act causes a wellspring of affection to bubble up in our hearts and tears to form in our eyes. Now, I may be reading too much into the text to assume that this is what God the Father experiences at this moment, but I don't think it's far off. His love, it rumbles like thunder over the river as he affirms that this is his son in whom he delights. Jesus is loved, and deeply so. The word that Matthew uses here for beloved, it's the same word used in Genesis to describe Abraham's love for Isaac, his one and only son. It captures not just the father's affection, but the son's singularity. This is God's only begotten, his one and only eternal son, Now, we know that this means that Jesus is divine, that he's God. But that understanding, it comes with the benefit of knowing the whole gospel story and the witness of the New Testament. The crowds almost certainly didn't get it that day by the river. I believe that God the Father says what he says here, not so much to tell us who Jesus is, but to let Jesus know how much he loves him. This is Jesus' public commissioning, and he has accepted the burden of his mission without hesitation, diving under the water that symbolizes death and emerging ready for the work ahead. There's no turning back. He knows it. God the Father knows it, and God wants his son to know, I love you, and I am so proud of you. Now, here's why this matters to us. Jesus came to save us from our sins by dying on the cross, but that wasn't all. He came to invite us into a new relationship with God as sons and daughters, just like him. See what that means? Through him, through Jesus, we receive the irrepressible, outspoken, everlasting affection of God our Father. God sends his beloved son on this mission because he wants us to know that he loves us as sons and as daughters as well. Jesus is our judge. The imagery of spirit and fire is frankly pretty terrifying. It should cause us to sit up and take stock. Are we like the Pharisees counting on superficialities to gain us entry into the kingdom? Or have we trusted, repented, and turned our lives to Jesus? Jesus is also our brother. He didn't save us from a distance. He came down as one of us. He humbled himself to the point of death in order to show us that flesh and blood, they're worth dying for. 
Jesus knows what it's like to be you. And he wants us to enter God's presence with the confidence that our brother's gone before us and paved the way. Finally, Jesus is God's beloved son. He is the outpouring of God's affection, the embodiment of true love. And through him, surprisingly, miraculously, we receive the Father's approval. In these words that God speaks over Jesus, we hear the words that one day will be spoken over us. You are my son. You are my daughter, my beloved. Come into my kingdom. We're in the early days of 2022. But um, I think if we're honest, it feels kind of like the world got stuck in early 2020. And it's been grinding its gears for the last two years. The world seems stuck in an endless loop of restless frustration, fear, and uncertainty. We will only get unstuck this year if we turn our focus wholly on Jesus and let him surprise us once again with who he is and all that he has come to do for us and through us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you as our judge, as our brother, <clears throat> and as God's beloved. We praise you. We thank you that you became one of us, that you are one of us, that you have redeemed us through your body given for us on the cross and through your resurrection from the dead. Oh Lord, would we allow ourselves to be surprised by you in this season and to worship you wholeheartedly and to follow you without hesitation all the days of our lives. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your honor and glory. Amen.